Hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Woe is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Joey Clark. Oh, welcome to it, folks. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. If y'all want to catch up on past episodes, just search the Joey Clark Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe. Really help me out if you leave a review. It helps get the word out there about the podcast, about the show. If because not everybody can catch it live here locally. And also follow me on the Book of Faces. And tonight. I want to get into a topic that's been coming up on the show a great deal, inequality. But more generally, the idea of wealth inequality, some might just call it income inequality, the different ways uh, that we understand and and talk about these things. Often people are talking past one another. They mean different things by it. And joining me to do this is uh, Dr. Stephen Miller. He's the Adams Bibby Chair of Free Enterprise at the Johnson Center at Troy University. Steve, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Joey. Thanks for bringing me on. I'm glad that you're here. And, uh, I mean, this goes way back just on a personal note. I'm, I'm getting flashbacks. We've done this once before here on the weekday show. But you were one of the first guests in studio when I was just hanging out on Saturdays. That's right. And I, I still remember those conversations with moral sentiments and whatnot. Um, but y'all are, and uh, the team there and several other people around the country are working on a, a new book. Um, and it's around this idea of understanding inequality and how it's measured, how it's brought up. What is sort of the the origin of this book? What made you want to team together across different universities across the country and say, let's put this together? Boy, that's a great question. Uh, there's, and there's a cool story behind okay. it. So I had already done some academic research uh, a couple of years ago on income inequality and Piketty's work with Emmanuel Saez on income inequality in the United States and a historical look at it and how they use the statistics that they use from tax data to measure it. So I had been working at it and thinking about inequality really just from that angle, kind of a narrow technical economics how was it measured, right. and what is the pattern in the statistics? And my colleague, G.P. Manish, who I, I, I think you know, oh, yeah. is uh, he came to me one day, and he said, I have an idea. So it really is his idea. He, he, he said, you work on stuff on inequality, and you've been doing that lately. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm really into it. I'm really interested. He said, well, what do you know about international inequality and this thing called Gini coefficients, which is one way to measure income inequality in a country? And I had been looking at the the Piketty stuff, which is a little different. He uses a different – he looks at the top 1%, right? Right. That's that's how his – that's his lens and how he looks at it. And the the Gini coefficient is more of an attempt to measure the overall distribution and therefore the overall inequality in economy, how far you are from perfect income equality. Okay, okay. And I said, well, you know, I know what it is. I have an idea what Gini coefficients are all about. I've seen international comparisons, but I don't know what to make of them. And he said, well, I think there's something really – misleading about them and how they're used. He said, so what do you think 
India's Gini coefficient is compared to the United States. And I said, India, I guess, I guess, you know, just from what I know, I think it has a, a lower Gini coefficient. In other words, India is viewed as having a more equal economy, sure. right? More right. income equality than the United States. And he said, don't you think that's misleading? And I said, well, I don't know. I mean, if you have over a billion people and a lot of them are around the same point, especially in the middle of the distribution, I don't want to get technical, right? But right. like there are reasons mathematically why I could see that. And that's, I have to admit, that's as far as I was thinking, was just statistically and in terms of the math behind the model of a Gini coefficient and the Lorenz curve, which shows income distribution. I was, I said, oh yeah, it makes some sense. He said, right, but is it a more equal society? And I said, mm. well, I don't know. You're, you're from India. You live in the U.S. now. You know, you tell me what you're thinking. And he said, I see here in the U.S., if I hire someone to come do some work at my house or I hire someone to, you know, a babysitter for my kids so my wife and I can go out, right? He says, if I hire someone, sure, they're like me. There's someone I could run into at the movie theater. There's someone I could, my kids might be in the same school as theirs. You know, when they show up at my house, they show up in a car that's either a lot like mine, or if they're doing construction, it's a truck that's probably more expensive than what I drive because they need that for their job. And he says, well, in India, you have to understand, if you hire anyone, whether it's to watch your children or do some work at your house or even an electrician, right? If you hire someone, they're not showing up in a car or a truck. They're showing up on foot or maybe if they're doing really well, a bicycle. And uh -huh. I, think, I think the last version of uh, the conversation we had, he, I, I even checked with him. I said, and maybe they're not even wearing shoes. And, I, and then I said, wait, is that, is that right? He said, no, that's, that's exactly right, right? They're yeah. maybe not even wearing shoes. It's a person who economically is very obviously from a different class and that there are obviously very big differences economically between different groups of people within India. And he said, in the U.S., although we know that statistically there's a wide variation of incomes, when it comes to the ways in which people live, right. the differences are less meaningful. Less, they're not as big in the ways that we tend to care about when we say we care about inequality. So I said, well, that's really interesting. And then we started talking about other people around the country have been doing work on income or wealth inequality, on economic inequality, and how we could get a bunch of different perspectives together. Okay. Other classical liberal economists. Okay. And, I mean, many, I've, I've read their work and I've heard of them before. I've seen them argue with people on the Book of Faces. Right. Like uh, Dr. Horowitz yeah. and Bordeaux and uh, Deirdre McCloskey is one of brilliant. Yeah. Love Deirdre's work. Uh, but it, it seems to me, and it's something that I... Actually, when I first, I didn't take many economics classes in college. I think I took the required political economy when I was at Auburn. And what immediately turned me off is that it was, it, it was kind of caught up in, in statistics and theory, which obviously have their place. I'm not down on it in the sense that it's not valuable. It is. But I'm like, how does this apply to the everyday economy that I'm seeing, how is it making making my life better or other people's lives better? How is it getting to more of these basic senses of what's fair mm -hmm. and what's equal, what's right, what's wrong? Uh, and also just the actual physical wealth. What actually makes us wealthy? Is it a number on in, in some 
formula? Is it, uh, is it even income? Like, is it just monetary income that is actually making us wealthy? So I love the idea that, as GP points out, that, okay, you might, based on a, a Gini coefficient, come up with India is less unequal. They're, they're more equal society. But if you're actually looking at the real things that make people wealthy, put people into, say, a certain class range, you really have to break it down and... Do you, my next question is, do you think that sometimes these statistics are just used and people aren't realizing where it's leaving blind spots, that you're not noticing major differences in class, major differences in, like, relative poverty versus, like, absolute abject poverty? That it, People are just getting caught up in the statistics, maybe like you, you yourself were, and you're just not thinking of it. Or do you think sometimes there are people maybe using these statistics as they give them the answer they they like well i think both are true okay I, I, and i and both can be true at the same time right right sure that you leave a perspective out when you already have in mind what the answer is going to be right right and it's very easy this is objective data there's a lot of it especially in the united states Right? It's very rich data. It's very complete. We have a hundred years worth of this data on income inequality. Right? Because right. it comes from tax forms, so it turns out it goes back to 1913. Right? So we have a lot of it. It's very detailed. And it's higher quality than it usually is in other countries in terms of just it's, just, it's more reliable. It seems more representative of the whole. You have it for everyone who files an income tax return. We have that feature of the U.S. tax system, which is just about every household is filing at least one tax return. So you, you, you look at that and you say, this is really good data. Someone like Thomas Piketty or Emmanuel says they've done really thorough work. And this tells me a story that inequality was really high in the beginning of the 20th century, and then it fell dramatically after the Great Depression going into World War II. And then in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it stayed very, very flat. And then, even in the, yeah, in the 70s. But then in the 1980s, bad stuff happened. The wrong people were in charge. And inequality started to ratchet up. People got more greedy is even part of the narrative sometimes. And so if that's kind of what you expected to see and what you imagined the case to be, the data confirm those priors. If And there's not a lot of reason to dig into them and think really hard about how a Gini coefficient is calculated or what that measure of the top 1% misses. Okay. And that is, to me, the, the sort of bumper sticker story I hear is the richer are always getting richer. It's all accruing to the top 1% or even the 0.1% you know, top. Uh, that the middle class is shrinking. We're not living as well as our parents lived. I mean, all these stories, I mean, most of it you hear from, uh, speaking politically, the left, but you also hear it from sort of right-wing populists. In many ways, President Trump talked about how the middle class is struggling, Mm -hmm. we're not, medium wages are falling. And to me, it all seems like, well, at first, you might be alarmed, and maybe individually, somebody's story might match up with that narrative. They're like, I'm having a tough time. I get that. But does, as you're looking at this in terms of, wealth inequality, but also like standard of living as we're progressing through these decades. Is that story true? That essentially the everyday folks are on Main Street are getting screwed and the top 1% are just exploiting the hell out of the rest of us. 
Well, and that's why there's maybe a different question to ask, hmm. right? A different question to ask may not be, what is the average income and how has that changed adjusted for inflation? Or what, you know, what is the median, I guess, is what the statistics usually use. The question, or what, what is the level of wealth inequality? But what is it that people have? What are they able to enjoy and what are they able to have? How many hours do they work? How many hours do they have to work to purchase the things that they want in their lives? How, much, how many hours do they now have to work to afford housing, to afford transportation, to afford entertainment, etc.? That's a different question to ask. And that gets to what is available to people, right? What are they able to consume? But don't just think about consuming, right? I mean, what are they able to experience? Right. What are they able to... How long are they able to survive now? So, for example, think about cancer survivability and how much that's improved. Yes, healthcare costs a lot, and the costs are rising very rapidly. But how do you price in the improvements in cancer treatment that have happened over the last 20 years? It's very difficult. Right. Steve Horowitz, one of the chapter authors, he's, he's very sensitive to this because he is, he's a cancer survivor now. Hmm. You know, he's gone through treatment in the past year and a half. And he, was, he benefited from a treatment that wasn't available 15, 20 years ago. And he says, you know, how do you put that into not just inequality statistics, but how do you put that into understanding what people's standard of living is and how it's changed over the years? Right. And like, just take entertainment because I, I consume a lot of it. I try to provide it yeah. to a certain degree. Is it, like, I'll go back for nostalgia's sake and watch, say, well, I was doing it just this week, my uh, roommates, early 90s wrestling. Mm-hmm. The footage is grainy in a way. It's not as bad as, say, like some of the 70s wrestling. But the footage is not that great. The graphics are kind of cheesy. Uh, the audio is a little patchy here. They're overmodulated in certain ways. And yet I'm streaming this audio and, and video on a internet app that an internet network that nobody could have imagined when, say, Vince McMahon, the owner of the WWE, takes over. Like, he, for years, talked about imagining a, a network, that, and they thought maybe a cable channel. Mm-hmm. And then it became, no, this whole internet thing. And I can just re- realize in my own lifetime, the whole idea of, of watching a movie, watching a show, it's just completely changed. And yes, we can put dollars and cents to that, and that's important, um, to directing what people actually want, but it's also how do I act, how do I value that and put a price on now instead of owning a huge DVD collection, almost every piece of television or movies or music is now at the, at the touch for like ten ninety nine a month. It's just it's like it's difficult for me to. Uh, Put in certain terms, and I'm sure you could in terms of like money and, but in terms of standard of living, that's just the entertainment. Like, I'm amazed, like the way we do these shows, the way we consume news, mm-hmm. everything has changed because of certain technological changes. And I'd, I'd imagine you'll get into that a little bit. That it's it's almost like individual people and certain technologies and products. And for instance, you brought up the the medium wage. Though. I want to start there. Mm-hmm. If you look over the decades, there might be a fall in the median wage or the median income. 
or it might look like the 1% is getting more. But as I was reading today, you shared a great piece. Uh, there is a difference if you look at individual people in those categories. What tends to happen over, say, what has happened over the last two, three decades if you look at individual people in those categories? Right. See, and that's one thing that I believe is a little misleading about how the statistics work. Even if you're looking at the top 1% or you're looking at the top 20% or the bottom 20%, when you look at how those change over time and you say, oh, the top 1% now has a, a larger share or they have a smaller share, what you're missing is there is no such thing human-wise as the top 1%. It's not the same people in the top 1%. A surprising number, I think it's pushing 30%, maybe it's down around 27%, but a surprising number of people find themselves at some point in the top 1% hmm. on the income scale. And that's because they'll have a house or a large capital gain or they'll receive a lump sum from from their pension plan or something, right? They're, 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 they're one, an inheritance or right, something. Right, yeah. or an inheritance. And, and so a surprising number of people for at least one year of their adult life finds themselves in the top 1%. And that's not intuitive, right? And so comparing that over time doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's different people. And many people may be moving towards each other, and the distribution is continually changing in terms of the people in that distribution and where they are. There are new people coming in. There are immigrants. There are young people who are getting their first jobs and have lower incomes. There are people who have earned a lot over their lifetime but then retire and aren't earning as much if you're looking at income. And so there's a lot of churn. There's demographic changes. Hmm. There's changes in households. And because so much of this is based on the tax uh, on tax data from tax returns, you have to understand there's a big change in terms of how people file their taxes, whether they're married filing jointly or married filing separately or single or qualifying qualifying widow or widower with dependents, hmm. right? And more than that, changes in the tax code changes what kinds of numbers people report in terms of personal income. So all of those things have to do with choices that people make in terms of who's in the household, how many people are in the household, how they file their taxes, what counts as income and what doesn't this year. And even when those things change, has inequality really changed between Joey and Steve? Right. Right? And that's, that's a point I want to make is that inequality is something that exists between people. Right. It's not something that exists between statistical categories, not in our intuitive sense of inequality, right? When we talk right. about inequality, we're thinking about inequality between people. We're right. thinking about poor people on this side of a wall or the slums in Mumbai versus the big skyscrapers on the other side. We're right. thinking about the people in those buildings, in those shacks versus in those skyscrapers. Right. We're not thinking about statistically... Exactly, and that's what I was trying to uh, put voice to, is that I, I'm thinking about like myself and other people I see, like, okay, are they getting a fair shake? And I want to make something clear. In terms of like income, like even if I do see that guy has a billion dollars, or somebody just won you know, the Mega Millions jackpot, I don't, ha- and maybe it's just me, I don't have an impulse of like, that's unfair that they have that much money and I don't. I don't have that impulse in me. But I do have an impulse in me that is in this other sense of inequality and or equality that you bring up. Is that did somebody lie, cheat, or steal to get that power over somebody else? Did somebody lie, cheat, or steal to get that money? 
it's it's interesting how that really will get mm-hmm. me going. That will piss me off. And that I care about. I care about fairness. I care about is there justice actually being served. I don't care if somebody has more money than me as long as they did it in a just way. And yet sometimes I, I hear my friends on the left, and they are friends, they seem to conflate the person is has the, the monetary wealth Mm-hmm. And that there's almost an uh, implicit assumption that it's uh, that it's wrong, and this all has to be kind of unpacked in a way. Yeah, and it makes international comparisons difficult, Joey, because in some countries that may be more or less true, mm. right? So in some countries it may be that out of all the wealthy people or all of the high income people in the country, the majority really are crooked, and it's, 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 it's ill gotten gains. Yeah. So what would equality require, right? Equality would require maybe that the outcomes differ a little bit. Some people have a nice new Mercedes. Some people drive an old Honda, right? It, it, it allows for some of that inequality, but we don't feel like it's rigged. You're right. right. Justice, it, justice is probably more what people care about. As a matter of fact, what, I'm, what, I've, what I've realized is I think one of the issues with the inequality measures is they're trying to make inequality something positive in the economic sense, something objective, and they won't want to come up with an objective standard. And the objective standard is always perfect equality, right? Right. The top 1% should have no more than 1% of the wealth. Right. Right? That's the idea, is that it would be perfect equality, that every person earns roughly the same or receives roughly the same in income. And that's total equality. And then how far you are from that objective standard is how unequal your society is. But inequality is probably, right, for our intuition, when we think and say inequality, it's more of a normative concept. It's a value judgment. Right. It's about is that fair? Is that just? Is there an outrageous gap between people? Right. Not just an incidental one. Right, and there, and it, this is interesting to me because people say money is corrupting, and you know, to a certain extent, we both love, I think, moral philosophy. Yeah. So, like, yeah, if you just love money for money's sake, you the love of money may be the root of all evil. Fair enough. Just money for money's sake could be corrupting. But I was a f- fun story. I was listening to this morning a podcast um, in the '80s. There was this uh, wrestler, and, and you might remember him, Ted DiBiase, the Million Dollar Man. Yes. <laughs> and they wanted him to be a bad guy when they're first crafting this character. And the Million Dollar Man really comes out of the idea that this is Vince McMahon. He, he hated when people would smoke around him, so he'd pay them to stop smoking their cigarette. So everybody's got a price. And, but they want DiBiase to go down to the ring and start paying people to do humiliating things. And out of this, is like, oh, look at him corrupting people and making them do terrible right. things. But there's a problem. Every time he starts offering money, everybody's like, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> and they're very happy to do these things. And it's interesting, Is and it's an interesting thing to bring up if somebody might have more power because they have more money. Somebody might be able to get people to do silly or stupid things for the sake of that money. But if somebody's volunteering to do it, I think everybody, even in a big crowded arena, will go, yeah, that's fun. We understand what the game is. Like the lottery was just played. We understand what the game is. Most of us aren't going to win. One or two, three people might win. But here's how they turned DiBiase into a bad guy. What actually pissed people off wasn't that he got somebody to kiss his feet and he gave him a hundred bucks. It's like, yeah, that's silly, it's fun, but I still got the hundred. The person still got the hundred. They right. made a deal. That deal's a deal. 
What pissed him off is he brought this little kid up. It was the f- first time they really turned on him. Brought this little kid up, little black boy, and says, if you can bounce the ball three times, I'll give you, like, 200 bucks. And the little boy starts to bounce the ball one, and then DiBiase kicks it. Right. And everybody just, hey, that's no, man. And there's a there's a basic moral instinct and psychology to it of, no. He cheated that kid out of that he money. Cheated. He violated the rules. He violated the rules. And I, I think there's, that's what I, a lot of people really care about. It's what, and I think we can both admit there are certain privileges in this country, legally speaking. Mm-hmm. There are certain carve-outs that companies are getting. And I imagine is this this larger book y'all are working on. I mean, it gets into technical issues. I was reading some of your chapter about... Uh, you know, should we measure this by individual income right. or or household income or larger family? Right. They might not even live in the same household or the same state, but you know they work together and that wealth moves around and and that's fascinating to me that wealth really can move from family to family or certain contacts and networks. But then there's also I'd imagine in this book um, just general senses of why this is even an issue in the first place and yeah. why it seems to play so well in politics. And I'm I'm very much interested, I have to say, because I do get frustrated in all the the sort of special deals and somebody lie cheating I don't like the lie cheating and stealing SOBs out there, Steve. Yeah. And that's that's the part of where I talk to my left wing friends and go, let's let's take those people on. Let's actually make things equal and fair. But that gets into a sense of what do you actually mean by equal and fair? Right. Well, and I think that goes back to how people view politics and wealth. Hmm. Right. There are people who are upset because they believe wealth buys influence in politics, and I suppose it does. Right. Uh, but I tend to be more of the frame of mind where I'm upset when political connections become a path to wealth. Right. Right? That, I mean, that's when I think of the world's uh, despots, right? You know, that seems to be a feature a lot of times. Although the worst ones maybe just crave power for its own sake. Right. right? Oh, that, yes. that's, that's maybe even more terrifying. But if you think about some of the worst dictators in history, uh, they may have been better off materially and had nicer soup for lunch than everyone else. But that's that's not the horrible thing about about them. It was right. it was the way that they made the distribution of power so unequal, right? So they, overwhelmingly unequal. I mean, what it, was it then? Robin Hood, the sheriff of Nottingham, right? Like, I mean, and that's what's funny. Robin Hood is he robs from the rich and gives to the poor. Well, no, he robs from the tyrant right. who steals from people. He's stealing back what was stolen from people in the first place. That's the true justice of that story. And I, I enjoy those conversations because it's there are plenty of conversations to be had about certain companies seeking special privileges in the law. But also, to your point, and this is, I think, happens more than people will let on, when, say, somebody in power... He goes, mm, you better play ball with me in a certain way or else I'm going to inflict this penalty on you. Right. So it's it's almost if you don't play the game with Washington, D.C., if you don't have a lobbyist and you're a big corporation, you're going to get bent over. I mean, you're not, it's, your competitor might use the laws against you. 
And this gets into a whole other sense of inequality that really has nothing to do with income. I guess people are searching for income, but it's a. It, and this is why the discussions I think are so difficult. Is we're saying the same word inequality, mm-hmm. but we mean different things on different sides of the political spectrum. I I think that's it. Although I I would maintain that intuitively, just just in terms mm-hmm. of economic inequality, intuitively a lot of us mean the same thing. It's just that then there's a tendency to take the leap and start measuring it a particular way and imagining that's what it's all about versus thinking about what it really is and what is the type of inequality that matters. Right. Right. You know, so I, I, I'm aware of a literature in psychology that suggests that what people respond to in terms of perceived inequality is not so-and-so 10 miles from you, right, mm. or 50 miles from you in another city has more than you do what seems to really rub people the wrong way is when someone right next to them does mm-hmm. it's it's what kind of car your brother-in-law drives it's your brother-in-law's house it's right or your neighbor's you know right you know it's what, right in what, front of your face right that your neighbor's new i almost said stereo i guess people don't really buy <laughs> stereos anymore but i remember when buying a nice stereo still that way i right? wish i had that turntable and that stereo right? set up but yeah. i remember when buying a nice stereo was a bit of a status symbol well and it gets us back to a point we were making earlier you can sometimes and it's important again this is what you do for a living in many ways the abstract work Mm-hmm. The statistical work and the you know creating models that act you know to help you understand that guy fifty miles away or a hundred miles away or across the world in Mumbai, but it really comes down to what's you and the people right in front of you and your tribe, right? Whether it's the material goods or the services other people are offering or what people can command, and it comes back to GP's point about the United States, and I think it's been true. For most of the history of the country, if I'm remembering uh, the Tocqueville correctly, Mm -hmm. is that in the United States, people did have a sort of common level of of wealth. And he didn't mean income, I don't believe. I mean, like, there's a sense of opportunity. Right. There's a a sense of we are all the same class of people. That's really, I think, what it is, is that maybe not in terms of measured income brackets or wealth brackets... But in terms of our perception, everyone is somehow in the same political class, and potentially anyone, no matter how far they are from you now, could potentially be in the same economic class. And then the exceptions to that are pretty much government-issued problems, like, I mean, the biggest one being slavery, right? uh, but then after that, Jim Crow, and all, all sorts of other issues that happen when the government sort of steps in and allows a very usually small group of people to exploit folks with the power of the law, which is a type of inequality. Right. But if you get back to that general sense of, okay, the people around me are we're ba- basically in the same, if you want to put it in terms of struggle, or we have the same sort of general opportunities. Uh, but in a conversation I want to get into after the break, even the, you know, You'll hear the distinction equality of outcome mm-hmm. or equality of opportunity versus equality of opportunity. Everybody agrees on equality of opportunity. Right. But even there, I'm like, I just want a surplus of opportunity because even the opportunities won't be equal. I don't think they will be. No, I think that's a very good point. And uh, people won't seize the same opportunity the same way. Uh, and I think it's important to uh, see the differences in one another and our different talents and strengths 
And that's what actually allows us to, well, to move forward and to feel like we actually belong together. It, it's a weird counterintuitive thing. Um, and, you know, I, it comes back to that story I was telling about DiBiase. A, a deal is a deal. And I really cannot, even when somebody is being a little squirrely, like, you know, when it's a guy, you know, I'll pay you to do something humiliating. But even that's in good fun. And it's, I just don't understand sometimes the resentment out there when people see somebody who's found a way to make their life better. And I'll give you, for instance, somebody, and it should be always a category on Reddit. It said, rich people of Reddit, how did you become rich? It was an honest question. It wasn't a result. It was just like, how do, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm a young 20-something guy. I'm going into my 30s. I've worked a job for a while, but I'm trying to really build some wealth here. Rich people on Reddit, how'd you do it? And this one woman wrote in. She said, I was a nurse. I'd gone through all sorts of education. I was working a floor, night shifts. I was making a pretty good income for a nurse, 50, 60 a year. But it was, it's tough work. It's hard work. So I started to save, and then I bought a real estate investment, started to rent it out and make money that way, bought another house. And she started to build up that wealth through real estate. And what amazed me is instead of and the person who originally asked questions said thank you to her and, and asked her a few more follow-ups, but there are a few people who responded and go, oh, so now you're a slumlord instead of providing a... <laughs> And it's just absurd. And I, I think, folks, if one lesson I've learned, that mentality is destructive. It will not help you personally. I don't think it will help the community generally. And it's why I have sponsors like Eddie Bader with the Goodson Group on here. Uh, because that's how he changed his own life. He was working a job that he was proud to have, but it was a 9-to-5 job. And he saved up. He bought real estate investments, properties, and he rented them out. And it went from one to two to three to four to five. And, and he's like, okay, now I can quit that job. I can be a, a landlord. Now I'm going to be a real estate agent. And that's when Eddie Bader got in contact with me. And he really, folks, wants to be your buyer's agent. So if you're thinking of, I want to buy a home, think Eddie Bader with the Goodson Group. His number is 322-0662. He wants to be your buyer's agent. But what exactly does that mean? Well, it means that if you are looking to buy a home, um, he can help you avoid some of the pitfalls of, oh no, we bought a fixer-upper that needs new you know, heating and AC. Uh, it needs all these different things. He can negotiate that in the process of buying the home. He can negotiate in the actual buying of the home, closing costs, warranties, again, repairs that might need to be made. I mean, imagine that also that things are a little intense. It's a big purchase. It's a big money decision. It can be emotional. That's why you need a buyer's agent like Eddie Bader with the Goodson Group. But here's the best thing when you're talking about a buyer's agent. It's free. How is that true? Well, it is. It's free because... Every residential real estate transaction, all commissions are paid by the seller. So there you go. It'll be negotiated. Give Eddie Bader with the Goodson Group a call. He will be your buyer's agent. 322-0662. 322-0662. He changed his own life. He'll help change yours, make yours better. And, man, we get going here, Steve. Dr. Stephen Miller from Troy University, the Adams Vivi Chair of Free Enterprise. Uh... We're already 40 minutes into the show. 
we got to hit this quick break. We'll be right back. I kind of want to get back into these different senses of uh, equality. And, well, I, I didn't think I would say this name years ago, but I want to talk about John Rawls. All right. We'll be right back. Joey Clark. Oh, welcome back. We're sitting here with Dr. Stephen Miller in the Johnson Center. He is the Adam Bibby Chair of Free Enterprise. And I was telling you off air, uh, Steve, that this basic question, are things getting better? I was reading a piece by Deirdre McCloskey. Mm -hmm. She just posted something in Reason about why she's not a conservative. But one point I took from it wasn't necessarily the conservative point, though that was pretty brilliant. Uh, it was more that it seems undeniable to me, because maybe it's because I've read her, but I, undeniable to me that things have gotten better in the last 200 years, let alone, say, the last 100 years. There have been terrible wars. There have been downturns economically. But I was just telling you my family history. If I look at my two grandfathers, kind of poor folks, respectable farmers in Andalusia and poor folks working factory work best they could in the slums of Newark, New Jersey. His, my great-grandfather, first generation immigrant from Poland. And now we've moved and progressed to where we are 80, 90 years later and things are infinitely better. And it wasn't some magical like we hit a big, hit the lottery. It was just people working and saving. And it just seems undeniable to me that things are getting better for most people. And isn't that, and I mentioned Rawls before the break, isn't his standard is inequality's fine as long as it's helping those at the bottom? Yeah, and not only that, it's that some degree, maybe even a fairly large degree of inequality is something we should tolerate if that is... If it still is a society that we would all abstractly choose to live in, not knowing where we'd end up. Right. As long as you're fine with randomly ending up toward the bottom, and it's still a society you would want to live in, well, then there's going to be some degree of inequality. He viewed it as impractical hmm. uh, to 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 suggest that there be a totally equally equal society. Right. Uh, Rawls... His book was called A Theory of Justice, but his conception of justice was he was trying to root it in what was realistic and what was feasible. It's very different from uh, – so there's a, there's a socialist historian or, or socialist philosopher named Jerry Cohen uh, who – I don't remember if he died before Rawls or just after. But he was, he was fiercely critical of Rawls. So, I mean, two, two philosophers on the left side of the spectrum, but right. he was fiercely critical of Rawls because Cohen didn't like that Rawls was giving away an ideal. Hmm. That, Rawls was, that Rawls was conceding that we're not going to have perfect equality or even perfect justice necessarily, that you need a broader sense of justice, a broader definition of justice that is feasible given that we're dealing with human beings. Right. And Cohen said, 
we're never going to have a society without murder. Does that mean we should not hold the ideal of no murder? Uh, of no murder, right. right? Of eliminating it. And so it was, it's a very interesting philosophical debate. Well, and even that, I hold politically liberty as the highest ideal, but I understand you're not, well, you certainly aren't going to end up in an anarchist society anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean completely voluntary, no rulers, folks. Everything's voluntarily done. I know that will not happen overnight. And though I can, I still think you can hold that idea. Where What's the your general direction? Right. And I, I find interesting, though, with Rawls is that he thought in order to have that society where you'd, living behind a veil of ignorance, would want to live at the bottom. If you ended up at the bottom, you'd be fine with that. You'd be okay with it, yeah. Yeah, it'd be just, still. He thought that that sort of society couldn't exist with a largely market society, right? So you right. needed a lot of government interventions. But it's it seems to me those interventions sort of upset that process. It, to have those interventions, you're now taught you're creating inequalities in power and privilege of who can use the government, uh, and this really ups sort of gets back to the discussion of different meanings of inequality. Where I'm usually focused on who has political control and certain essentially who's how are you using your freedom and your license. Are you agreeing to it, or do certain people have the power to force you to do other things in the name of certain ideas? Right. Well, this goes back to Ted DiBiase, okay. the million-dollar man, right? <laughs> because I, I think there are then two different conceptions of justice and maybe even conceptions of liberty. Because there are those who would argue that you don't have true liberty, and it is fundamentally unjust if DiBiase offers you $1,000 to kiss his feet. Sure. Right? Because he, because of his wealth, he has power over you. Because of this fictional wrestling character's wealth, he has power over you. Yeah. Right? The idea is that uh, Bill Gates has power over you. Right? That if you just select a billionaire, it's not just that... Obviously, some people are upset that maybe people are going to listen to Bill Gates. Sure. He's going to have some influence over aid policy in Africa and all kinds of other things, and maybe people don't like that. They want their voice to be equal to his. That's one thing. But there, there's this further argument that he fundamentally has power over all of us because he has a lot more money than just about all of us. Right. And your conception of liberty and probably my conception of liberty are, that doesn't make sense. That's not really true. He doesn't have power in the same sense as, say... Even the president of the United States has power over us, or it's and certainly not the way you know the president of China, right? Putin has power over his people. Well, so I th I think what's going on there, and and people honestly hold these different views. So some yeah. people have a view of wealth that wealth is merely a means to an end, and people who view it differently or who try to pursue wealth. And don't view it as a means end, but view it as an end in itself, they're just not going to be happy. And they're not really going to have a lot of power over me, and right. my life will be fine if they do that. And then there are people who have, like, the Mr. Burns conception of wealth, right? right. Smithers, fire that man. Like, like the, <laughs> that it's, 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 it's more than just the wealth itself. It's that the wealth almost necessarily means that it's going to be used to make other people miserable. Right. And well, it's and taken, Right. It's also the zero-sum mentality, right? That right. if wealth is accumulated, that means it's wealth that other people couldn't have. 
Well, and it's uh, wealth. I think it's just a. It is a tool, though. Like it, you could have an evil person that uses their wealth for terrible, evil me- ends, and they go about it in a terrible way. This would be the Doctor Evil conception oh, of wealth, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, but I, I generally step back if we're talking about what does liberty mean now. My conception of liberty is not. I do not conflate it with agency. Mm-hmm. Just because you are free doesn't mean you will be able to do something. Uh, just because you are, are allowed your own space of freedom doesn't mean somebody will help you. I think people should help you. Uh, I think you should have every opportunity within your power to try to better yourself, to give yourself more agency and empowerment. But to essentially conflate agency and liberty, you're starting to get into a game where we're going to have to treat certain people unequally in order to create an equal sense of agency and liberty. Right. Oh, and it, it's 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 very confusing at the no, end. No, I th- I think I and so I I think you helped me put my finger on it a little better, which is what's going on with different conceptions of wealth and different conceptions of inequality and why inequality matters is if you don't really believe individuals have much agency, right? Mm. Then what wealth does is it seems like people with wealth are they're they're kind of the only ones with any agency right right and it's robbed from others right but you don't you don't by default imagine that people who have lower incomes or people who have less wealth have agency and I don't view it that way at all. Well, I'm 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 amazed, right? Regardless of where I've been in my life and the amount of material well-being I've had, but never mind me. There are much better and more inspiring stories than me. Right. Who, right? I mean, I've maybe moved up a couple of notches, right, over the course of my life from how I grew up. But there are people who've made a much longer and tougher journey. Well, and, and how is that possible if they haven't had agency? Well, and, and that's what the actual statistics show is that if you look at individual people and families, they are they tend to rise. Mm-hmm. They tend to go up even a couple notches. But to your point, you sometimes have people, it's not just that they made a lot of money. It's that they created something. They actually, It's not that they have dollar bills in the bank account. They actually created a valuable thing. They created wealth out of their own ingenuity. They, they're the ones, they had the agency all along. And then the wealth was accrued because of their ingenuity. So somebody like a Steve Jobs or somebody like a Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos starting out in a hotel conference room, barely anybody paying attention to him. And he's now a multi-billionaire or he's a billionaire and he's trying to go to space and, you know, create industry up there. It, it, then they, you have to step back and go, okay, these folks didn't just like play a, a, a gambling like they're not just in a casino putting money on different mm-hmm. games. There's something else going on here that allows that wealth to be created. Oh well, that thing is called entrepreneurship, yep. right? Right. That, that's what it has to be. Entrepreneurship. It's that ability to see opportunities where other people see nothing but a flat space. Right. And it's uh, well, I think it upsets. It's now we're just talking to each other and agreeing. Yes. Nobody wants to hear that. Well, <laughs> really, we're out of time. Let's argue about agency. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, oh, well, but I mean, but then also, here's the thing: it's valuable, folks, to watch wrestling sometimes because you figure out why is that rich guy evil? Because he lies, he cheats, he steals. Everybody's gonna pay, and he treats people like things.
That's why you don't like. It's not because he's wealthy. It's because he takes something that everybody wants, wealth, and uses it for a bad thing. That's why you don't like. It's not the money itself. Well, Steve, I really appreciate it. Um, folks, uh, I guess you visit the johnsoncenter.org. Or, uh, well, you can go on Troy's, Troy's, Troy's website and find us. There. I wish it was that, it was that yeah. easy. But uh, I appreciate you joining me this evening. Um, love to have you back and have GP back in the studio, especially as this book continues to get flushed out. Yeah. Right. Thank Thanks you. A lot. I'll be back tomorrow night, folks. Well.